As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? The minute you become higher profile, uh, a couple of my investors said to me, okay, your head is now above the parapet. Look out, stuff's going to start happening whether you like it or not just because from this moment onwards, you are going to be a little bit more high profile. And they were right. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Thank you for tuning in this week on the pod. We have a bit of story time. So our guest is Fraser Robinson, and we can introduce him to you this way. If you've taken an Uber anywhere in Europe, Britain, Africa, the Middle East, you have him to thank. That's because during Uber's wild kind of high growth days, Robinson ran Europe for this and took this, you know, little brazen San Francisco startup from virtually nowhere, at least in, you know, in the UK and Europe and beyond to all over the region. Now, these days, he has his own startup called Beacon. He left Uber in 2018 to start Beacon, which is a freight forwarder. And you're probably thinking, what is that? And we'll get to that. But it is basically the middleman between retailers on one end, their suppliers on the other, and making sure the former gets what the latter is making. And in these days where e-commerce is just completely exploding post-pandemic or during pandemic, Beacon is busy. So we brought him on to talk about just what he is up to at Beacon, how he got Jeff Bezos to invest, which is, you know, always a good thing. And also just to talk about the ups and downs of more than 20 years of startup life, going all the way back to the OG lastminute.com up through Uber and a few stops in between. And he has some just some good stories and really valuable lessons to impart um, from really being right at the heart of one of just the fastest growing and really kind of just crazy startups of recent years. And then we also, of course, cover the problem he's trying to solve now. But we'll start all of this conversation where I think we need to start, which is what exactly his current company does. So with that, I give you Fraser Robinson, the founder of Beacon and the former head of Europe for Uber. Enjoy. What in the hell is freight forwarding? <laughs> Do you know, I love that question because right near the beginning of my career in tech in the early 2000s, I was part of the online travel revolution. Oh, yeah. And uh, I worked for a company called lastminute.com. Last Minute. We had Martha Lane Fox on this program. We've also had Pete Flint on this program. We haven't had Brent on yet, 
Oh, we, we can make that happen. Yeah. We can make that happen. <laughs> so I can, I can be the third lastminute.com alumnus exactly. to, to join the Danny in the Valley podcast. But I, I love the question because freight forwarding, and I, I think people in logistics might grimace when I say this, but it's not dissimilar in many ways to being a travel agent. It's kind of like travel agency for logistics. It's travel agents, but your 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 clients or the things you're moving around are not people, but like big containers. Correct, correct. Right. You know, if you look at a travel agent, your job is to provide your customer with flights, hotels, car hire, organize it all for them so they have a great holiday or, or business trip. Freight forwarders are pretty much doing the same thing. Uh, they aspire to be asset light. They aspire to organize the movement of your goods from a factory in, I don't know, China to your warehouse in Birmingham. Uh, and that's the job of the freight forwarder. So it's, it's now obviously, it's, it's not precisely the same as being a travel agent, but the fundamentals are not dissimilar. So that's really what a freight forwarder does. And people say, gosh, I, I've never heard that term before, and nor had I before I got into this. But you start rattling off some of the company names that do freight forwarding. And they go, oh, I've, I've heard of DHL. Sure, I've heard of Kuna Nagel. And you, you start to rattle those off and people go, okay, I, I, I'm, I am aware mm. of these types of businesses, usually because you know, you've seen these trucks pass you on the motorway. Yeah, <laughs> You've yeah. all seen a, uh, you know, that stuff. So, but that's what freight forwarding is. Uh, and they tend to have the end business as their customer. It could be a retailer, it could be an e-commerce company, and they partner with, on the supply side, the, the people that own the ships, the ocean carriers or the, the fleets that own the trucks. So they just kind of sit in the middle of all that and orchestrate it on behalf of their customer, which is the retailer or the manufacturer. So what problem are you solving? Because that, you know, to your point, we see the, we see all of this happening. We see, you know, things getting from point A to point B. Um, it all works. Does it? Or does it? Or does it? Are you sure that, that, that it does? I spent a ton of time asking myself the same question. I must have spoken to, interviewed hundreds of business owners who have freight forwarders helping them with their business. Not once did I ever hear a company say it works. that the service they received was <laughs> outstanding. Yeah. And that it was just incredible. And there's really nothing to solve here. <laughs> I never once heard that. And, and as I was researching a bunch of different opportunities, I tend to gravitate towards the ones, the interviews with the most swear words. When people use expletives to describe the service that they receive, I go, okay, that's good. We like that yeah. because it means somebody's very passionate about, about the problem. And that was just a recurring theme in, in logistics. Mm. And, and, but to be really specific, what's happening and what has, has really, I think, driven a lot of what's going on in our space is it's all tied to the rise of e-commerce. And we've all seen this. I've been in e-commerce for many years. I, I know, you know we, we're all consumers of online products. And you look at an e-commerce business and the individuals that work in businesses like that have certain expectations around how to do their job. They might use Slack to communicate. They may, maybe they go out on a Friday night in an Uber. They're, they're on Facebook and Instagram and all this stuff. And they're very familiar with the tools of e-commerce as well. They understand the importance of data. They understand the importance of visibility and so on. So you get an e-commerce company that's got all the tools, the digital marketing tools and so on. Uh, and then it gets to the supply chain piece of their job. And 
nobody can understand why there's a fax machine in the corner of the office where the logistics team exists. And it's because the tools and the visibility just have not kept up with mm. the rest of the business. Now, that might be okay in a more traditional business where you, you might be a little bit more analog. But e-commerce and that rise has driven the demand for transparency, data, insights, and tools, quite frankly, that allow you to do your job better. And that's been a very, very strong secular shift for the need for, for tools. Uh, to enable supply chain transparency and so on. So that's what's what's motivated a lot of this and what I think driven a lot of the change. So is it kind of taking this process, as you say, that is pretty heavily analog? I mean, if you're still using faxes, I mean, that says a lot. Um, and just putting it online, putting on a platform, putting on some kind of portal that every, that you can kind of track real time. And I'm thinking again, as an e-commerce customer, when I buy something, it's like, you know, track your package. Oh, now it's in Chattanooga. Oh, now it's in sure. Biloxi. Now it's in, you know, Las Vegas. And so it should be here tomorrow. I can sure. kind of follow that. Is that kind of what you're talking about? So that's where, that's the very natural place to go when you first think about this visibility question. But actually, that's really sort of a sideshow, to be honest. It's Logistics, it's not like, I, I keep re referencing Uber here, but it's, it's not like Uber where you really do need to see where the car is. I mean, that's, that's a very valuable thing. It's like I, it's, I can manage myself. I can manage my stress levels. I kind of know where, where we are. That's not the problem that is, is being solved for in the supply chain. The, the problem is, let me give you an example. The problem is, let's say you're the procurement team in a business that manufactures sofas that you import to the US from China. First of all, you need to raise a purchase order to have those sofas made. Then you need to manage the production cycle. When are those sofas going to be ready? Will they be ready the date that was agreed? Synchronize the readiness of those products to uh, when the goods need to be collected and then moved to the port and shipped and go through customs. The warehouse team on the other side needs to have a sense for when these goods are going to arrive and in what quantities, and so on and so forth. So you've got this sequence of events and occurrence happening, and most of the time things go wrong. And the problem is that all the different steps along the way don't know when something's gone wrong, or what's happened, or why. And so the domino falls, and the rest of the dominoes fall. And it, you lose this, what's called this agility, or flexibility, in the supply chain. So in order to solve for that, you need to have all of those dots connected so that when goods are running behind, the warehouse can accommodate that and adjust. You know when to order the goods that need to be ready in time for Christmas. Maybe historically, a manufacturer has been late with their goods. Weaving all those things together is very hard, but gives businesses the ability to far better plan when to have stuff made. Uh, when to ship goods, when is the optimal time, how to balance your inventory better in your warehouse, and so on and so on. Uh, if you don't have that, you become highly reactive in your supply chain. And that's very expensive because all of a sudden you've got overage fees, customs isn't paid in time, suddenly you've got fines. It just all piles up. And then you have costs that become unmanageable. So it's a lot more, unfortunately, than knowing where the ship is in the sea 
it's really weaving the end-to-end stages together of making the stuff, shipping the stuff, and getting it to where it needs to be at a time that's expected. And before you did this, you said you uh, worked at Last Minute. What did you do before this? How did you end up in the very sexy world of freight forwarding? <laughs> so I was in, in, in San Francisco, actually, in the late 90s. I did my, my first startup before lastminute.com, but that, that blew up in the first dot-com bubble. What was it? In it was, um, we tried to, this was in the States. So I, I, was, I went to college in the States. So I spent the first years of my life there professional life there were you in at stanford or something and then stayed in no no i went to princeton i I went i went to the east coast and i i joined the the hallowed halls of of wall street investment banks i went to morgan stanley as so many did yeah and i actually found my i found my way moving to san francisco in the late 90s because the tech m a team at morgan stanley was just doing super interesting things Uh, i'd been on the east coast and uh, and there was an opening there and i i was uh, lucky enough to be chosen to go and move to the west coast and and, and operate in the in the tech MA team in san francisco which totally transformed my view of the world what was the craziest deal you worked on because i was working as a journalist around that time and there was just i mean it was bananas but was there any deal that re- that sticks out still my, i didn't get to do the sexy stuff having moved all that way the, <laughs> the, the most high profile deal i worked on and and, and this is the thing is that yeah, back then, a lot of it was was software deals. Yeah, Everyone yeah. thinks of Hotmail and Netscape. I got to do McAfee security software's acquisition of Dr. Solomon's group, which was a big deal at the time. Ah, it was in software, yes. security software. <laughs> so not the exciting deal you're looking for, I'm, I'm afraid. But nonetheless, it got me out there. And it, it changed my view of technology and the world. And it was clear to me that there was something happening. What got you excited? It was the first time I'd ever really seen entrepreneurs who were so young being afforded so much opportunity to to explore super interesting ideas. People were given a lot of rope. A lot of rope, you know, a lot of rope. And 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 there were some pretty they were for the rest of us non non tech people, there were some pretty outrageous concepts <laughs> that I'll never forget. I will never forget going Going home for Christmas, I think it was 1998 or something, from, from SFO back to London. I was going to go see my family and get into the airport. And there was a, cons- a computer console there. And it said Hotmail. But it said, check your email. And I remember standing there and thinking, how can I check my email from a random computer? <laughs> I, it, just, 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 it, 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 was, it was this... It was this concept, right? That yeah. Everyone, I mean, all of us, everyone in San Fran, of course, is like, well, obviously, you know. But to the rest of the world, it was like, I don't get that. Surely my email belongs on my computer. So there was just a lot going on, a lot of ideas that were eye-opening. And I was just, you know, captivated by the energy that a lot of very young people coming out of places like Stanford were able to engage and explore these ideas and make them happen. That's just so captivating when you're a 24 year old banker who's been up all night producing you know presentations to see somebody your age being given a lot of money Mm. to build a business it's exciting and so of course you you want to explore that and understand it better and did the bust change your view it changed my view in a very healthy way which was because you you i mean remember businesses i don't like like the globe.com and 
and tripod. And there were, there were a bunch of these kind of early content-y kind of businesses. And it really focused my mind on the need for uh, technology businesses to make money. It focused my mind on the commercial use of technology. I think that there was a, a real rush in the late 90s towards just having a website in the first place. You've got to be worth something. For sure. And, and you know, no, no idea how monetization could ever happen. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter, right? And so, so I learned a very hard lesson there. And, and I thought our mission was actually a, a pretty good one, which was essentially digitizing government transactions online parking tickets, speeding tickets, you know, just, just that sort of transaction-based model. What was it called? It was called E the People. E the People. That's a, that's a, and I don't mean this pejoratively, that's a very dot-commy name, you know, to say. Sure, well, of course, it's 1999. E the People. <laughs> it's a long time ago. <laughs> I feel really old now, Danny. <laughs> um, so you launched that and raised venture capital for and did the whole we raised venture capital you know we had the we actually did it from new york funnily enough you know we had the the loft with the the first micro scooters and the you know oh, wow. did the whole thing you were like living the full nathan barley dream oh just embarrassing in retrospect <laughs> um but it was it was so so valuable because we did actually build the beginnings of a pretty interesting business. And I remember having to solve for some some very basic problems like, okay, if, if a person wants to pay a parking ticket on it through our website, how are we going to pay the government? And the government, there was no way to, to do that. So, so I went off and I researched this rebate check industry, which was how people who cashed in their old TVs got a check back. That's how, the, that's how that transacted. So we went and did this deal with a rebate check company that meant... Um, uh, a person would come to our website, pay a parking ticket, and then this third party would cut a check for the for the amount of the parking ticket and send the check to the local uh, um, speeding authority. Seamless, seamless, machine. seamless, seamless experience. <laughs> but this is this is how so much of that tech was yeah. happening at that time. It was really just the the veneer. But but the lesson I learned was, you know. I didn't want to be exposed to the vagaries of the market. I want to have a very clear sense for how to commercialize technology, and which is which is what led me to online travel because it was just so clearly ripe and perfect at the time for an e-commerce transaction as as travel remains. So what happened to what happened to either people? Was it just basically a casualty of the bust? Disappeared into the ether, <laughs> literally. Uh, yeah, we you know we. We we ran out of money in literally in 2000, and I think the bust was probably March. Uh, we started a raise in February, oh. and I mean, you know, uh, that was the end of that. And that, so, if you started a raise in February, and then the proverbial hits the fan, oh January, I can't remember. Yeah, that. yeah. Was it kind of like rah rah rah, and then all of a sudden people were just stopped returning your calls? I mean, was it that stark? The, the VCs we were dealing with, and I won't name them, but, but they were great. They absolutely took our calls, and they were very transparent about what was going on. Right. And it was basically, we need to sit this out. It's nothing personal. It's just business. You know, yeah. you know the It's lines. not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. We've all heard it. <laughs> so I just learned a ton about execution, fundraising, how to think about technology and monetization, and also what it's like to leave the cozy warm blanket of a big institution and suddenly to be responsible for everything that's just the most valuable lesson i think of all i've i've talked to uh founders about that 
sense before of like, you know, and I still have this as somewhat as an employee of an organization, but you like, there's adults in the room. Like there's somebody else is going to kind of, there's a, there's some problems over here, but somebody's going to figure that out because there's adults in the room. And then when you're starting your own company, at some point you look around, you're like, where are the adults? Oh, oh wait, that's me. I, that's me. You go, oh, I'm in the room. This is the decision room and I'm in it. Oh, and I'm the only one in it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely a thing. So I think those were some really valuable lessons from those early right. days. And that, and that was, as I said, why I was much more focused on an industry like travel in the early 2000s, because it was so clear to me at the time, I think it's clear to everyone at the time, that that was just a, an obvious place for e-commerce to thrive in the early days. And so how did you end up at last minute? I was introduced to uh, the founder, one of the founders, Brent Hoberman, and Martha had actually just left, and he was looking for somebody. So I, I, I wanted to come home, and he was looking for somebody who you know, had been in tech startups, uh, understood something about tech, had some formal training uh, that I had received from, from the banking industry. And back in the early 2000s, there just there weren't a lot of people with those capabilities in the UK. Yeah, uh, there, there just weren't. It was just a very different landscape then. So we were introduced. I wanted to come back. Uh, he needed somebody uh, like me. I, I I fit the bill, and so he he brought me on. And and I I was hired to sort of you know I was worked directly for him. You know helped him with execution board decks. How do we proceed? It was just basically. I don't even know how to describe the role, but it was just being attached to him for a number of years. And then I ended up uh, being the commercial director of the business. But it was just a, a great way to enter the business right. as a CEO's kind of bag carrier, quite frankly. You see everything, you participate in a lot of those decisions, and you get to see how it works. So it was a really valuable uh, next step for me, having come out of a, uh, a failed startup. And how long were you there? I was there a long time. I, I was there until about 2010. Oh wow! So you you were you rode two wild roller coaster rides of the up and the down. I did, and actually, it was a really fun. It was a real adventure. Because what kept it interesting was that lastminute.com went through a couple of cycles. It was first acquired by Saber, yeah. or well, by by Travelocity, which was owned by Saber, and then subsequently Saber was acquired by TPG and Silverlake. So just got to see a lot while building an online travel business, um, what it's like to be private equity owned, what it's like to be merged into another company in, in tech. So it was a really informative time. And travel, you have to remember, travel in the 2000s was the industry where so much of, of what we take for granted was born. Most payments solutions were designed and built out of there. Um, SEM, SEO strategies with Google, these were all ad tech, retargeting. Just so much was born out of the travel industry because it was so big and really the only industry that was meaningful in e-commerce at the time. And maybe books, I think. I think Mr. Bezos would probably disagree with me, but travel was an obvious one. So it was a really formative time in tech, certainly in e-commerce. And you were there till 2010. And is that when you went over to Uber? No, 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 no. So I, I had a, one or two full starts while I was at LastMentor.com. There were a couple of businesses that I really wanted to start, and I, I just couldn't get the wheels turning. But I, I eventually started a business, a SaaS business, which is still going today, 
which uh, provides technology to e-commerce companies. It's a B2B SaaS product. It's a conversion optimization tool called Tagstar. But I was really keen to do something in B2B, which I'd never done. And I was really keen to do something in B2B that was hitched to e-commerce. And I just thought there was a ton of interesting stuff going on with analytics uh, for e-commerce companies. And that's, that's what Tagstar does. And it's still going today. It's doing great. But that was, again, leaving the comfortable warm blanket of a business that was, you know, in good shape and back to being alone yeah. in a room with a piece of paper, uh, needing some money, uh, designing the product, hiring the first engineers and, and building it from zero. And so that was, you know, again, back to the coalface, which is, uh, I think, a healthy thing to do from time to time. For sure. And so how long did you do that? Did that for a few years. And, you know, you went through the trials and tribulations. Uh, SaaS is tough. I learned a ton about building great products, but realizing that one of the biggest challenges with SaaS products is selling them and getting adoption. <laughs> um, and so that was a, a, a good adventure and you know, had a, a ton of success with it. But there reached a moment where it, it started to started to hit a sort of flat period, a, a pretty hard flat period. Uh, and I was struggling a little bit with it. It was, it was making money, profitable. As I say, it's doing great now. But it, it hit a tough period. And I, I had some, um, some personal things going on that, that sort of compounded it. And it was almost out of the blue. I, so I got this approach from, from Uber. Mm. And, and there I was, you know, sitting in the morass of a problem moment with my business and, uh, you know, suddenly San Francisco started beckoning. And I, at first I was like, no, 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 I'm in my thing. I'm in my thing. Uh, this is going. And I mean, I'm not going to name names, but I, 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 was, I was almost talked out, of, <laughs> talked out of staying where I was and, and coming to Uber after a few cycles. Uh, so I went from my own startup, which was a hard decision, mm. uh, into Uber in 2014. Who recruited you? Was it Travis or was it um, folks below him or how did that work? The person who, who drove my recruiting was Emil, Emil Michael. Oh, okay. And, uh, and so, you know, he got me over to San Fran um, to sit down with, with Travis and, and, all the, and all the team. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. And what was Uber? What was Uber at that time? Because obviously everybody knows Uber now. It's kind of a household name and everybody knows the history, all that stuff. But what was it then? I mean, when I first, when I was first approached by Uber, which was many, many months before I joined, because there was a, a process of my basically saying, no, I'm, I'm doing my thing because I was here in London and Uber was still very much a, a black car product. Uh, it was very much a luxury product. It was not a, a good price point. It was more expensive than a black taxi in London and all yeah. those things. So, so I was aware of it, of course, and um, had seen it but was not sure about it because I couldn't really see the use case beyond people with a, a big expense account in Mayfair. But as, as I mean, literally this, this, this is how quickly think these things happen. Over the months that my conversations were evolving, the product at Uber itself was evolving. And it very quickly became clear that, that the opportunity was actually around what was originally peer-to-peer, -peer, but let's just call it the sort of more scalable, lower price point product. And that's when it became interesting, and that's when I, I actually thought, huh, actually this is this is super interesting. If these guys are moving beyond the Uber exec product, which was just a different thing entirely, and then, and then I think I don't think this is any great revelation. I think that everyone acknowledges that's the moment that actually Uber's uh, fortune started to turn around and it, it achieved the kind of growth and scale that, that everyone's familiar with now. And so what was your, you came on as what? What was your job? Um, my title was head of business for EMEA. And it's a title I'd never heard of before. And when I asked um, Travis and Emil what it meant, uh, they said, just make Uber great in EMEA. So it was a broad remit. That's pretty broad. But it's also kind of a, quite a startup approach yeah. which i which i liked as well because all joking aside the point was look uber was the kind of business which is very uh, city city centric you know it really a city is kind of an island i mean are there network effects between cities and countries i mean sure you could argue there are but but really the city is each city is 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 the thing and you know uber was still relatively small in EMEA at that point very small in EMEA at that point and the goal really was to ensure that Uber could scale in the region, but in a unified fashion, rather than allowing, you know, these cities to exist in absolute isolation uh, in, in, in a fashion that doesn't scale nearly as well. So it was really about trying to ensure that the scaling and that the way the business was run and that how we operated and how we did deals was thinking about the business more holistically. And so it was it was really... That was the starting point. And then you start thinking deeply about, okay, country by country, what are the issues here? Is this reg it's regulatory here? It's something else here. It's, it's this here. And, and then you, you start to figure out strategically what you need to be doing. So it's, it's, a, it's a broad remit, but at the same time, you can kind of see how it's like, you know what, Fraser? You tell us, like, go figure it out. And that's kind of how Uber functioned. Go work it out and tell us what you think we need to be doing. So what happened? Well, it's a matter of public record now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, look, I, I, think, I think the years 2014, late 2013, 2014 through 2018, 2017 were, were some great years at Uber, quite frankly. It was a, a lot of growth, a lot of customer adoption, 
we went from being in a couple of countries in EMEA to being, I mean, I don't know even where we ended up, you know, like 40 countries you know, after a few years, and built some very, very big, interesting, meaningful businesses. So that was that period. I mean, we all know what happened uh, towards the end of that particular range of time. But I think all in all, when you look at what was happening at the time and the rate of adoption, it's, it was incredibly exciting. And, and you can kind of, in retrospect, see how, of course, something was going to go wrong. Well, this was kind of, yeah, that's kind of why I asked. Is like, if you go from a couple countries to 40, for example, yeah, just in that region. And as you say, Spain is very different than the UK, which is very different from Germany, which is very different from Pakistan okay. to Nigeria to Russia. Exactly. I mean, you know, everything is in that. Is there a way to grow that fast? And I'm also, whether this is Uber or Facebook, which now is three, three and a half billion people who use that thing. Is it possible to get that big and not just really screw some things up? It feels like an impossibility. I don't think it is. I think it is possible. I really do. And actually, when I look at, I mean, Facebook, Uber are, are not, are, are very Im, imperfect examples because Uber is a, a super operationally intensive business. It's, it's very physical. It's very hands-on on the ground. Facebook, uh, I mean, I'll probably get you know, blasted for this, but Facebook has the luxury of probably being able to be in a country in which it has no physical presence. Yes. U Uber does not have that luxury. So I think that operationally, it was, it was, it was tough. I think Uber absolutely excelled at execution. And I think, you know, where Uber sort of fell down was probably more about you know, some cultural question marks and so on, which I think are actually solvable things. I think that Uber has proven that mechanically you can scale at that pace because actually Uber was exceptional at doing that. I think that there were probably some behavioral uh, issues that, that were going on. But those to me actually feel like they're more solvable things. I think when people talk about scaling quickly and not having the wheels fall off, uh, I think Uber proved that the mechanics of scaling an operation like that can be done at that scale. And, and Uber was pretty successful at it. I mean, because you were obviously right at the heart of this. Is it a sustainable business, at least as currently constructed, or do they just have to yeah. double what they charge? Because I just don't understand. Like, you look at the balance sheet, and I, obviously Uber is now shifting heavily toward food delivery and booze delivery and all this stuff. Yeah. But just cheap, on-demand transportation like water, quote-unquote, like uh, Travis used to say, that feels... I don't know. I don't, it doesn't seem like it's a sustainable thing, at least at the way it's currently constructed. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. And the, the short answer is, yes, I believe it can be. And, and I'll explain why. I think so, once you accept the fundamental fact that it is a low margin business, mm. so that's, that's you know, undeniable, at the, at the sort of the revenue level, right? you've got your gross bookings, then the amount that's paid to the driver, and then Uber gets its revenue. This isn't really about that margin. What you're really into now is, can Uber's operating costs be reduced and automated to the point where the bottom line is attractive? I think that Uber has now moved into a world of, okay, you throw warm bodies at the growth problem. It's the time-tested you know, solution. Throw a ton of warm bodies at the growth problem. You get to your scale. 
okay, now we've got this scale. Now we have to find a way actually to make the bit below revenue work, which is your operating costs. And once you've gone from a thousand people to 18 or 20,000 people in four years, there's a ton to unwind once you've reached that sort of state. And I think that Uber needs to think very carefully about how it can streamline and automate the operational side of its business. And then I think you can get to a really interesting place. And that, I think, is the, the real answer to these low margin at scale businesses. When you say the operational side, what do you mean? The people. So when you are growing a business like Uber in a city, you're launching, you're scaling, lots of people needed, onboarding drivers, checking driving licenses, uh, dealing with regulators. It's a lot of people. What you need to get to at scale is that you have an operating model where there's maybe two people in the London office. Uh, or one person in the Manchester office and Uber is in maybe five cities in the north of England. That is what I mean about removing the operating cost, which is which is a lot of those people required to get a business going, but you want to get to the point where it requires far fewer to be at steady state, just operational. So in other words, have a lot of it more automated is what you're saying. Correct. A hundred percent. Right. A hundred percent. And I think that that has to be the answer. And that is the kind of office, like kind of mid-office operational logistic end of things, as opposed to just obviously yeah. the drivers of the drivers. Yeah. Centralization of marketing, centralization of, of, of a bunch of that stuff. And that's the, that's really the place you can go because what else is there? You can expand into other more high margin top line businesses or make your operational side of your business more streamlined and functional. And I, and I think that that's where certainly Dara, from what I hear, is laser focused on doing just that. And I think that is the answer. Because, yeah, it's, the answer is not to raise prices and do all that stuff. You know, it definitely exists at the operating side. Do you, are you still a shareholder? I am still a shareholder. You didn't, uh, you didn't jump ship like uh, Travis did and walk away with his billions? Well, I, 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 threw, I threw sort of a leg and an arm off the ship. <laughs> I've still got a – I've probably still got a – a hand and maybe you right. know, an arm and a, a bit there. You know, I, I of course, you know, everyone knows it's it's not wise to concentrate, you know, everything in one place. But I, I am a believer in the business, and I, I do think that once you have that kind of skill, I think that that Uber ends up becoming more of a utility product. Yeah, I think it is here to stay. So I am a, I am a believer in the long term mission, and I think that uh, the team's doing a good job. So I've put my money where my mouth is. And if you could go back and do it over again, what would you have done differently about the London operation? Because obviously that has been a huge problem yeah. in lots of different ways for the company. Look, I think it's easy with 2020 hindsight to say would have, could have, should have. But I think that I would probably argue that we were perhaps a little bit more resistant to engaging with regulators than, than we should have been. Mm. I think that there was a, a real nervousness, a palpable resistance to, you know, engagement for fear of, you know, uh, you can't do this, you can't do that. It's, it's the old, it's easier to apologize than to get permission. So, so I think that there was a resistance, resistance to doing that in certain markets. I think that didn't play out as well. And I think London is probably one of them. So in hindsight, perhaps we should have been a bit more transparent and engaged earlier. And I know that is for sure the policy now. And it should be. Yeah, well, that was the, the part of the culture, right? Of like the kind of almost a, a combative kind of 
standoffish attitude toward regulators around the world just because, it, I mean, obviously the company was taking on some pretty entrenched forces. And as you say, if you just like, you just barrel in there and offer something that people like, then you figure out the rest later. That's right. I mean, the un- you have to remember the underlying assumption was that the regulators do not want us here. Yeah. That was the, that was sort of the underlying assumption. And so you can see very clearly how from there, you know, it's like, what do they want? Give them the minimum. You know, it's that sort of nervousness. And, you know, it's it's hard to know at the time what would have happened had we opened up sooner. But I, I think it was probably the right thing. Uh, knowing what we know now, that a business like Uber in London, I think, was so widely accepted. And I think that, that the regulators are genuinely welcoming of innovation around mobility. I, I think perhaps Uber, we probably should have opened up a bit a bit earlier. But it's it's hard to say. You just never know. It was it was we were in the thick of the of of uh, trench warfare at the time. And um, while you were there, I think from when I think I remember from when we talked a couple of years ago, you also did the deals in Russia and is, is Saudi. Is that right? Yes, correct. Yep. How did those come about? <laughs> Well, the Russia deal is, is is easier to explain. So you're referring to the sale of Uber Russia to Yandex Taxi in Russia. You know that was a a very difficult deal to get done. But it, what was clear to to me certainly at the time was that it was one of the few markets in the world where Uber was faced with a superior local competitor, and that was pretty unusual. Actually, it was it's a China that that dynamic was sort of existed in China. I think in in Russia as well. So it's clear to me that there was uh, we needed to do a deal if we wanted to capture the value in Russia because Russia is a super super valuable ride hailing market. So I, I think that, that strategically that was uh, clear. Uh, it was took me a while to convince you know San Francisco let's let's call it, but we got there and I think it was the right thing to do. On the Saudi deal. A little bit more nuanced. I mean, you know, obviously Saudi has been sort of much, much reported in the, in the last yeah, few yeah. years. Um, nobody had ever heard of PIF when I first uh, spoke with them. The the PIF is the, the the public pension fund that's going around investing all over the world. Yeah. No, no, really, nobody ever heard of it. It was, it was, it was just not a not a thing. How did you How did you come into contact with them? Did they Was this the phase where they were kind of going out and being like, we have this gigantic pile of money that we're trying to invest around the world? Even that hadn't happened yet. Oh. And in fact, what's interesting is, so, so a big part of my job was engaging with uh, investors all over the region. So I, I did a ton of that. So I had you know, many hats, one of with the corp dev and the fundraising and so on. So part of my job was to make sure I'm in the conversation with sources of capital. And I was just introduced to the team at PIF. And we started talking, and the conversation just evolves over many months as you go. And uh, they revealed that they had this strategy and that there was this plan for Saudi Arabia to shift its emphasis away from oil and so on, and that they were there was this emerging investment strategy which which would leverage a a large pool of capital. So nobody ever heard of this. I remember talking to, again, you know, the guys in San Fran about this. Nobody ever heard of it. Yeah. And it, everyone was kind of like, like, like what? <laughs> like, <laughs> really? And, and I feel like that the Uber deal for them was as much an investment, a financial investment, as it was putting PIF on the map. So it was, it was I think, where PIF really 
became high profile. Because how much did they? How much did they invest? Uh, three and a half billion dollars. Right. And so it was uh, a super interesting time. Really, really exciting deal to work on. Super small team. You know, not many of us at all. We mm. we didn't use banks at all. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was exciting. Did you have any like late three in the morning meetings in Riyadh to kind of consecrate the deal or anything like that? I think most meetings in Riyadh, or a lot of them are at three in the morning because it's less hot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had meetings at 6 a.m., 3 a.m., uh, 12 p.m., uh, all times all times of the day. But yes, there, there are definitely some, some nighttime meetings. <laughs> um, so... You left in when, 2017, 2018? 2018, yeah, to pursue this. Right. Which was, funnily enough, a product, a product in a way of my time with Uber, which was, you know, Uber, there was this product, this business called Uber Freight, which you, you may be familiar with, which was Uber's foray into logistics. And it was witnessing some of that that is where the, the interest in, in the broader logistics industry was formed. Uh, and then, you, you know, you go on the journey from that. Right. And you've raised what is it, fifteen million, including our seed, just under twenty, just under twenty um, seed plus seed plus Series A, and uh, yeah, it's it's been a, a really interesting time to build, you know, a supply chain business. You know, we closed our Series A. I, I'm going to go with five days before this thing called COVID mm. was announced towards the end of wow. December 2019. So we were, I think, very fortunate in that timing. Because it meant we were able to continue to hire and build and, and quite frankly, power through the darker days of COVID in, in the first half of last year. But what's been interesting about COVID is it's raised the supply chain yeah. back to being a, a super strategic consideration for every business on the planet. And that has been a, a tailwind for businesses like ours because it's a re it's a real problem that i don't i i have to spend less time convincing people that that they need me and more time explaining to them you know how we can help them which is a much better conversation yeah. to have and is it amazon that's invested or bezos personally that's invested uh bezos uh, not amazon i always like to be really transparent about that so there is no relationship with amazon uh, beyond what any arm's length third party business would have with them did you have a meeting with bezos himself or does he have like a team of people investing his money he has a team working around him so i'm going to answer the question you haven't asked which is i have not met him but uh well i know he has a, a close team around him and i uh i know that he he sort of vets these things personally and, and makes the call himself so uh, so there's that, I suppose. Right, right. And what is the status of this um, of the lawsuit from Vanguard, who say you've stolen their idea and your copycat business, and we were going to do this, and now you've done it? Yeah. Um, nothing would make me happier, Danny, <laughs> than to elaborate and to go into detail, such as my uh, confidence in this particular instance. Uh, but I, I, I really can't go into detail. But I, uh, I think we are defending it robustly, and, and so feel you know, pretty comfortable with the situation, quite frankly. But you know that particular lawsuit aside, yeah, you know, it's I think uh, I think the the valley is is littered with you stole my idea allegations. Well, this is kind of why a part of the reason I was asking is it's, it's a lot of you know Facebook was whatever the fifteenth or twentieth or what I can't remember what the number social network. 
there's no such thing as an original idea, but it does feel like, you know, sometimes these, it feels like sometimes these cases are valid and sometimes it's not, but it's always interesting. It feels like every, every idea, uh, certainly every good idea, there's a lawsuit around it. Totally. I, I think that's right. And look, everything's always subject to interpretation. I, I think fortunately in most instances, and I think this is, this is one, in most instances, there are no hard things, you know, there's, there's no like CD-ROM stolen. It's, it's, it, there's just, there's just none, none of that stuff going on. So, so I think you get into this world of ideas and it's, it's just, um, the minute you become higher profile, I think a couple of my investors have told me the, before we announced our last round, which obviously 8VC and Jeff Bezos backed, uh, a couple of my investors said to me, okay, your head is now above the parapet. Look out. Stuff's going to start happening whether you like it or not, just because from this moment onwards, you are going to be a little bit more high profile. And they were right. <laughs> so I, I think that you, you've got to take the rough of the smooth and expect that, that things like this will come along. But as long as you've you know played it straight, as we have, you weather it and you know, you're stronger for it. But I think it, I'm afraid, goes with the territory, such as innovation. Right. And in terms of it, from your time at Uber, do you have a story, like one story that you would tell at a cocktail party that really kind of sums up your time there that really is like the, the one you retell because it's kind of captures what it was like at that time? Yes, but this isn't a cocktail party. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. Have a drink. <laughs> oh, it's my, this cup of tea isn't the same thing as a martini, Danny. Um, Danny, I, I have I have some wonderful stories. Uh, they just they just aren't publishable, not because they are wrong or illegal or rude, but just because I think it would be unfair of me <laughs> to share them with the world in this way. Um, but next time you're in London, I promise you, over a drink, I'll tell you a couple. The the public wants to know. You don't have, you don't you can't give you can't give us a little like a little sprinkling of one. Oh gosh. Um, uh, buh, 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 buh. Scanning. Let's see. Rated R. Rated PG thirteen. PG. Yeah. G. I mean, put it this way, and this probably isn't as juicy as you like, but I think that the role uh, that that people like I I had to play was you are that sort of that first or second line from you know Travis, for example, and so you you do end up in the more awkward situations. And you do have to put yourself in some of those places where you have to sift through some of the, the you're trying to find truth. And you get when, when you're in a business like that, and you're in so many of these countries, whether it's Russia, Pakistan, you know, all over Africa, and so on, the Middle East, you are often panning for gold. Uh, and you have to sit in, in the room to find out who's, who's really got influence, who can help you, who's a genuine investor. And in doing so, you, you meet a lot of people that you have pinch yourself moments. You, know, you find yourself in situations where uh, they are slightly extraordinary, uh, whether it's you know sitting in, I don't know, cars with oligarchs who are on their way to their jet and you're trying to sort of figure out how to deal with uh, building the business in Russia, you know, and they sort of, they're not happy with you and pull up to jet, they get out of the car, get on their jet. They ask you to get out of the car. The car drives away. You're standing on a runway. 
<laughs> wondering how you're going to get home because there's no Uber supply <laughs> at that particular remote. So, I mean, that's not a particularly exciting story, but uh, you know, yeah. it's you you find yourself in these very real situations mm. that you think you would only see perhaps in a in a television program, uh, and suddenly you're in them, and that happened a lot. That happened a lot, and and you know, those those I think who are in businesses like Uber who who have to build these U.S. tech businesses, whatever it is, in in some of those parts of the world, you have to go on some adventures to figure out how to build your business in some areas that uh, are less explored and less well understood. So you do have some adventures, and I, I have lots of them. But there, and some of them are just weird and wonderful. Some are moments where you think, "Am I going to be okay?" Uh, but you, you, you always are in the end. Are you still in touch with Travis? And did he invest? So I am definitely in touch with Travis, and uh, he and Emil, in fact, uh, very, did invest and were the uh, very first investors. So yes, and and Garrett, in fact. Oh, Garrett, um, Garrett Cox. Yeah. So uh, so yes, definitely. Right. They've uh, been very supportive. Cool. Well, we've gone dramatically over time. I can leave you to I can leave you to your tea, or maybe you and I can have a martini and kind of uh, you can. There we go. There we go. You've got me thinking now. You've got me thinking about all those stories. Maybe I should write them down. You should. You absolutely, I, I would, you should. I think so. <laughs> but listen, it's great talking to you. And I'm very, uh, thank you so much for having me. I, it's, I always enjoy our conversations. So appreciate, appreciate uh, you asking me to do this. No, pleasure. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Fraser for taking the time. When we recorded that, it was getting quite late in London. I saw the kind of the lights going down as we spoke. It was middle of the day here, but it was getting late there. So glad we could get it done. Glad you guys stuck around, had a listen. And for all the ratings and reviews, obviously, of the pod, which always helps others find it. And that is it. Um, We may be back next week with another couple pods. Maybe, maybe. Uh, A few things up in the air right now. But thank you, as ever, for listening. Feel free to ping me on twitter at danny fortson email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk have a fabulous weekend stay safe stay sane it's you know we're getting there but anyway take care talk soon bye listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.